Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. Hey, Founder Fam, before we dive into another incredible conversation, I want to share something really special with you. Whether you're just joining us or you've been following us since the beginning, you've been a critical part of our community working to change entrepreneurial education. I started Founder almost a decade ago with the mission to provide entrepreneurs access to the world's greatest business leaders. Our goal was to break down barriers to entrepreneurial education, and that's taken us on a journey from Founder Magazine to this podcast and beyond, and today marks the next step in that journey, Founder Plus. I'm proud to introduce you to Founder Plus, which is an all-access pass to each of our online courses and programs and their proven frameworks for success. It puts every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined our family or you've watched us grow from humble beginnings, we're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making the founder brand and this company the world's best entrepreneurial community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we get into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come back, check out Founder Plus and go to founder.com forward slash membership. I'm really excited, guys. This is an incredible new evolution of entrepreneurial education, and our mission is really to get as many of these founders that we interview to teach and also give back on the Founder Plus platform and really go more in depth with the knowledge and the experiences and the lessons learned that they're sharing all in Founder Plus. So guys, please go check it out if you're enjoying these interviews. That's it from me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now let's jump in. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey, Founder Fam, welcome back to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Today, we're going to be sitting down with Lyndon Tibbetts, the co founder of IFTTT. It's called If This Then That an online integration platform which is used by millions. And we're going to be talking about how to create a business around a problem-solving product, the future of AI, and how to really use it to start, grow, and leverage it, really to start your business and grow it. So please welcome to the Founder Podcast, Lyndon Tibbetts. Lyndon, the first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? I'm originally from Texas, came out to California, Bay Area for school. I went to a small school called Santa Clara. I uh, was lucky enough uh, to be recruited for basketball. I can't tell sitting down, but I'm extremely tall, uh, six foot nine. So kind of fooled a lot of people into thinking I'd be good at basketball. But, you know, apparently it takes more than height just to do that. But I think the bigger story there was I knew probably since I was 13 or 14, that I wanted to be doing computer stuff in Silicon Valley. Pretty stereotypical, you know, computer kid dreams, video games, Pixar, Star Wars, that kind of thing. Um, So I did computer engineering in school, pretty much rode the bench playing basketball um, and was lucky enough. My first job out of school was, you know, the dream job, worked at Electronic Arts. Um, So did video games, worked on a game called The Sims 2. And, uh, yeah, I think kind of checking some proverbial box, kind of like that right out of the gate, 
really allowed me to kind of sit back and say, well, what did I really want to do? You know, I kind of had this dream job and, uh, for whatever reason, I, I just, it didn't feel right. And, um, was able to kind of after a year or two of kind of exploring things, realize that what I loved about games and movies was this almost like automatic default focus on the end user, right? Like the end user of the game or the movie, it's, it's so obvious. It's almost kind of silly to say, but you know, everybody working on that product is like oriented around how do we make this like the best experience? Um, and that same kind of mindset can really be brought to just about anything. Uh, it's a lot harder to do. It's not kind of automatic if it's not a game or a movie or something that's just so obviously about that end user experience. But, you know, you could make something as mundane as an ATM machine, an amazing user experience if you really think about it. And that led to uh, kind of an interest in design um, and did a lot of what I really call kind of self-education in design um, and then wanted kind of nothing more than to like cut my teeth at a design firm, you know, actually work in design, uh, applied to like, I think it was like 30 or 40 different design firms, uh, only heard back from one, uh, and was able to get a job there. And it just happened to be the design firm IDEO, uh, in Palo Alto. So, uh, kind of knew of them before, but really, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure if you can rank the design firms, but you know, they'd be the top three, uh, if not number one. And, um, yeah was was hired as an engineer that kind of wanted nothing more than to be a designer was able to do that over the course of two or three years and kind of in that process you know just kind of learning through osmosis really stumbled across a lot of the kind of problems and initial inspirations that led to ift and just got so excited uh about the idea and working on it that i almost like couldn't stop myself I like i worked on it nights weekends I think there was a couple of times like I took a week off and didn't go anywhere other than, you know, my living room in front of my computer to work on it and eventually got the enough courage to kind of quit my job and do it full time for about a year, had saved up enough money. And, um, yeah, you know, can talk a little bit about how it started, but like that was, that was kind of the process for me. Um, you know, there was just this pull to building stuff that people use and, you know, there's really nothing like the internet, uh, to get people thinking about how to effectively imbue superpowers, uh, allow people to do things that they could really only dream of doing before. Um, and honestly, I'm still kind of riding that high. I still get just as excited about what we're working on and just as excited about kind of how that user experience plays out and how to make it even better kind of every day. So in that, in that regard, uh, all the kind of trials and tribulations have been worth it or aren't as big as I think they might seem from, from an outsider's perspective. It's a fantastic product. I started using it or used, was a, a power user, I'd say at least six, seven years ago. Um, definitely when I was much, when I was uh, really getting into this idea of automation, I'm curious. Um, so, you were at uh, IDEO and then you built up enough money f savings for one year before you went full-time, then you started. And I, I call it IFTTT. You call it IFT. That's how you pronounce the company. What, what, what is the preferred? Yeah. Yeah. Either way, you know, it stands for if this, then that. Uh, I think the only way we kind of cringe at is like if you try to pronounce each T individually, like IFTTTTT, but uh you know, it's, uh, it's okay. Any way you want to pronounce it, we're cool. It's, uh, you know, we've got three T's and kind of make what you will of that. So it's definitely worked despite a definitely, you know, kind of awkward, hard to say name. Yep. So, um, so you, when, when did you start working on the product? Was it while you were in your job or, or was it after you went full time? Yeah, probably for about six, seven months. Um, and, you know, one little wrinkle in the story that I, I, I didn't say, but also speaks so highly of IDEO and why I'm still such a big fan. Uh, I tried to quit. And, uh, you know, sometimes I like to say, at least from an engineering perspective, uh, if you build enough stuff where you're the only person that built it, uh, there's uh, quite a lot of value attached to that. So I think I had done that, got to the point where they basically said, you know, could we just pay you part time? Could you stay on like health insurance, things like that? So for, uh, I think I worked on it solo 
uh, pre-launch for probably two years, but about nine months of that was kind of working part-time, uh, you know, two or three days a week down at IDL and the other two locked away in my apartment. So yeah, got you. And when did, when did you launch and how'd you get your first customer? Yeah. Um, we launched December, 2010. Uh, and I remember even, you know, my, my brother, Alex actually, uh, was one of the founders. So he was sleeping on the couch in that living room where I was working on it. And, uh, yeah, he, he really pushed me to launch it, uh, you know, that, that month because he, he wanted us to be able to say that we launched in 2010, thought that was a nice kind of round number. Uh, so we launched into this kind of private beta mode. You had to get an invite kind of before, uh, you know, really that whole kind of concept of being in private beta and making it slightly exclusive, uh, really kind of took off and people put all kinds of bells and whistles on that, but that like really worked. We, um, you know, I had some connections through work and, and friends at uh, the MIT Media Lab and thankfully got a few of the folks there to like post about it on Hacker News. Uh, so I had like kind of lots of credibility from, you know, cool people saying, hey, this was cool. And um, yeah, I think in that invite mode, I think we got like 350,000 folks to like sign up and wait for an invite before we actually launched publicly probably four or five months later. Wow. And product, things like product hunt weren't really around back then, right? No, no, this was, this was kind of like if you were to like take a case study, uh, uh, for like why there should exist something like product hunt. It was basically our experience with hacker news at the time. Um, you know, basically I put a lot of thought into probably too much thought into the end user experience, wanted to like build something that kind of stood out and was really unique. Um, and that really kind of paid off in spades. It was something that right from the get-go, even though I think we launched with like 12, 13 services, uh, of which you have over 800 now. Um, so it was kind of just useful enough, but it, I think it struck people as being so different uh, than anything else. Um, and that kind of really helped it spread just by word of mouth. Hey, this is, this is something cool. Check it out. Um, and even at the top of the conversation we talked about the name IFTTT if this and that and something was really unique about that too right it wasn't a it wasn't a like dot ly or you know any of those other names there was something that kind of made it stand alone and I think you know trying to build something that stands out especially from that end user experience like how they perceive your product you know you only have 10 20 seconds to impress someone or help them understand what it's all about and you want them to walk away kind of wanting more or being so intrigued that they tell their friends about it. Um, and almost kind of by accident because we cared about those things so much. Uh, I think that's part of what helped us in the initial days kind of get to lots and lots of people giving it a try. Yeah. Awesome. And what led you to this product? Like what, what questions helped lead you to IFT? Really it kind of this, uh, mixed bag of things. I think, um, I always try to give credit to uh, a woman at IDEO at the time named Jane Fulton Surrey. Uh, so she was someone that, uh, was, you know, super, super executive at the time. Um, but in the early nineties, uh, she really kind of, uh, kind of made her mark as one of the first psychologists to work in design. Uh, so she was a professor at Stanford. And when you hear people talk about like human factors or human centered design, uh, I really think it all started with her and kind of her big insight, which again, kind of sounds so obvious in hindsight, it was that to build better products, you have to get to know the people that use them, get to understand what their problems are, what their kind of relationship with alternative solutions are. And, um, kind of through those insights and through getting to know the people that you think are going to use your product you end up finding all kinds of ways to make that product so much better. Um, and see, so she had this book called thoughtless acts, really kind of, kind of a picture book, almost a little bit of like IDEO, IDEO marketing. Um, and what it was, was, you know, these pictures of people taking, uh, physical products, um, and adapting those physical products to solve a problem. So, you know, simple examples would be like, uh, using a hammer to hold a door open while you're like, bringing a couch inside or, uh, taking your pencil and like putting it behind your, you know, in your hair to hold up your ponytail. Or, I mean, even another example of that is like putting a pencil behind your ear. So you don't lose track of it while you're using both hands. 
And so like each one of those little examples was really kind of like, it's an invention. It's like uh, this creative reuse that everybody is capable of doing. And in fact, we probably do it, you know, 10, 20, 30 times a day without even thinking about it. Um, and that's really no different than what kind of modern programming is all about. You know, programming, you're, you're never like actually programming zeros and ones. You're taking kind of layers and layers of tools that have kind of functional properties, things they're good at, things they're not. Um, and then kind of adapting those or reusing those to build something new. And, uh, there was this kind of insight that, you know, uh, if you kind of try to connect the dots or kind of connect what programmers do with what everybody is capable of doing in the physical world, this kind of creative reuse of, of tools and objects, um, there's really no reason why there should be one class of people that can creatively reuse things in the digital world. Uh, the other class of folks that can only really do that in the physical world. And so if was really meant to be a solution, how do we kind of pluck something very powerful, but still kind of simple and extensible from the world of programming and build a user experience around it and made it approachable and easy enough to use kind of regardless of your digital skill set. And, um, yeah, that was the insight, you know, it's, we never kind of talk about turning everyone into a programmer. Um, but anytime you automate something, uh, even if you're just clicking a couple buttons and, you know, turning it on, um, you're essentially programming, you're setting up a uh, kind of a set of cause and effect events, um, to make your life better, to do something that, you know, uh, wasn't happening before in your world. And, uh, yeah, in, in that regard, I think we've succeeded at least yeah, in, in a, in a, in a modest way. Um, but the end goal is to make technology less scary to give people that same comfort, you know, that they currently kind of take for granted in the physical world. The fact that really anybody is capable of adaptively reusing something in their environment or, you know, putting a pencil behind their ear, uh, and making it just as mundane and just as almost, uh, expected, uh, in this kind of unknown and kind of scary digital environment. You've created a product effectively that can solve a problem for anyone. Um, I'm curious how you've got the target customer dialed in and who is it? We're still working on that, you know, over a decade later, right? Like, I think that's the, um, it's been one of the, like, kind of like the biggest problems and also one of our biggest strengths, right? It's, it's if this and that, and you kind of fill in two blanks, what's the this, what's the that, and, you know, depending on what you're using and what problem you're trying to solve, it can kind of do anything. And, uh, that's really hard to market, right? Like if you can do anything, you're probably not doing, you know, any one thing well enough to appeal to someone. Um, and I think thankfully we've always had enough users and enough interest. Um, and we've kind of stuck to, uh, this idea that it, it can't just be so specific that it, it goes from being kind of uh, an extensible, you know, programming language, uh, to a tool that just solves one problem. And that, you know, many times has been really painful. Uh, but I think because of that, we've kind of been able to ride these successive waves of kind of whatever is super hyped or really interesting in the world of technology, if just found a way to be relevant. Um, you know, so started the early <clears throat> kind of like web 1.0 stuff, when, you know, like I, I call it the golden age of APIs, everybody had like an open API, like Flickr API, Twitter, so on and so forth. And we kind of rode that into IOT. You know, we started if without really any concept of, you know, Hey, this, you know, connected device world was right around the corner. Um, a lot of the early examples or some of the exciting things we would talk about is, you know, when everything was connected, you know, everything is going to be an internet service, kind of whether we like it or not. Um, but then as IOT really started to take off with like Nest and some of the early like Wemo products and Philips Hue, uh, thankfully people were able to find like really cool use cases and things that were like really valuable to do with IFT uh, and connected devices. And that kind of turned into and blurred into uh, voice assistants. So, you know, Amazon Alexa, Google Assistant um, uh, were some of our pop most popular services for six or seven years, uh, still quite popular. Um, uh, but you know, I think that then I think is we're just heading into, uh, AI is such a, such a big deal right now. I think so much of the hype is warranted 
Uh, and we just launched some AI-specific services built on OpenAI uh, just a few weeks ago. Uh, so folks starting to actually use IFT as really kind of a first entry into getting uh, AI to do something for them, summarize meeting notes or take uh, a new Twitch stream uh, and create like a really kind of human readable or kind of almost personalized tweet or Facebook posts to drive people uh, to check out that Twitch stream or something like that. So I think, you know, my, my hope is, is that as the internet continues to evolve, whatever that next wave is, uh, this idea of automation and if this and that uh, will still apply. And that was something we actually thought quite a bit about in the early days uh, for that very reason. Like, how do we how do we get specific about who we want our customer to be? Or should we build something that's kind of usable by anyone? And, um, you know, to finally come around to answer your question, you know, we are getting more specific. Uh, and it does kind of uh, involve AI a bit, but I think more generally, really looking to help folks that are trying to find ways to make money online, whether they're an entrepreneur or someone, you know, again, just kind of monetizing their YouTube channel or their Twitch stream. Um, you know, we have this idea of uh, kind of an enterprise of one. So we call it internally folks that are building businesses uh, that are either purely digital or much more digital than they were before. So that group also includes, you know, we talk about like a wedding photographer, you know, five, 10 years ago, they may not even, you know, they maybe had an email address. Uh, now they're probably using 10 to 20 different specific tools to help them run and build their business, whether that's, you know, finding new clients or sharing those photos back uh, with their existing customers. Um, and we want to help those folks solve problems um, because not only is it, there's something I think really empowering about helping people make money online in ways that they weren't able to, uh, but also because, you know, our business model has evolved too. Um, right now we're uh, very laser focused on the end user as our customer. Um, and the more that we can help that end user make money in some way, the more likely they're going to be able to find enough value and if uh, to upgrade and pay. Mm, interesting. So you guys are looking to attract and focus in on effectively the creator economy. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I think, yeah, that's, it's one of those things that's kind of been this like slow, slow build, right? Like even the very beginning of, you know, kind of web 1.0, uh, people were so excited. I remember even talking about like microtransactions. I don't, I don't even know if I could tell you what the hell a microtransaction is. Um, but you know, there was this idea that in the same way that like, you know, like crowdsourced, you know, like Wikipedia and things like that, um, there were going to be ways in which everybody was going to be able to make money online in some way. And I think it didn't come true overnight. Uh, it didn't get so hyped that it kind of blew up like AI is now or voice assistants did, but I think it's still very much a thing. And, uh, if we just wait around long enough, whether it's a few years or 10 years, um, they're just going to be more people making money or whether it's a side business or their full-time job, uh, it's going to be, you know, somehow very much related to or on the internet. And I don't think that's a, a very visionary statement, but it's also like, I think what's interesting about it is it's not something that we're, we should just hold our breath and wait for. It's like happening slowly, but surely year by year. Yeah, no, look, I agree. And we share a similar type view and well, like a vision of the future where at founder, we really want to help fuel and, accelerate people's growth and future through entrepreneurship and we provide all sorts of tools but more in the form of education information lessons learned and experiences so um yeah no that's really cool i think one of the things that probably doesn't get enough attention is how big the gap is between kind of the opportunities to be an entrepreneur uh you know like there's you know kind of in a very brick and mortar world right like you think of starting a restaurant or a coffee shop or a bike store. Um, but when you get to the internet, uh, for so long, the idea of being an entrepreneur on the internet was tied to venture capital, right? Like, you know, like hitting the grand slam, uh, building, you know, this massive corporation, hundreds and thousands of people, uh, that was like the end goal. And there was really nothing in between that. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest opportunities. There's so many, I think, different types of businesses, um, 
no one's even thought of yet that must exist in that space between, you know, Facebook and your local coffee shop. And I think part of what, you know, we talk about the creator economy, I think that's just kind of a fraction of the types of businesses that will exist in that void in the future. Um, and so trying to figure out like, where are some of those next opportunities? Uh, and again, how do we help them save time, make money or, you know, do something they weren't able to do that allows them to start that business easier or make it, uh, uh, easier to run. Um, it just, it just gets me so excited to think that there's this, this almost blank spot on the map between, you know, Facebook and the coffee shop that we're just starting to kind of explore and figure out. All right, a few questions I'd love to unpack. First one is around AI. We've got to talk about that a bit more. So what what uh, ifs are, are your favorites right now or you think that our audience should be thinking about or would be using, which are absolute no-brainers, tapping into OpenAPI, um, ChatGPT? Yeah, I think the thing that we probably do best with AI now, uh, it's kind of like that, that use case I mentioned before where, um, you know, for lack of a, a sexier term, it's like kind of cross posting. It's using audiences that you've built on other platforms to drive interest in a piece of content on a specific platform. So whether that's, uh, you know, having a certain type of, uh, uh, discussion in your discord channel or starting a Twitch live stream or uploading a new video on YouTube. Uh, and then taking that and then trying to drive interest in that across other channels, uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, your email newsletter through MailChimp or something like that. And I think what our AI services do really well today is allow you to kind of plug in all of that content, whether it's like the title, the description, I think pretty soon even be able to like put the link to the video itself and have AI watch the video or understand the video um, and then summarize that or encapsulate that in a piece of content that's better suited for this other platform, for Twitter or for Facebook. Um, you know, so you can imagine, we can't quite do this, but imagine um, starting a Twitch stream for a certain game uh, and then creating uh, kind of a human readable message that invites your kind of Facebook followers to come watch it uh, in your own voice uh, and also creating uh, some piece of media, whether it's a, a clip or a, 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 a video that's tailored specifically to kind of the best format for that specific platform. Um, so I'm kind of blurring the lines a little bit between what we can do now and what we want to do in the near term future. Um, but I think already, it, you know, it's a use case that we have millions of people kind of doing without AI. And, you know, AI is kind of this, you know, a little bit of magic, magic fairy dust that you can sprinkle on top. Uh, to make it much more valuable, uh, much more interesting, much more than just kind of a cross post, you know, like new Twitch stream link uh, to make that something that's actually interesting and kind of suited for that platform, that audience, uh, even though you're really trying to alert them about something happening on a totally different platform. Yeah, what that's fascinating. So can you tell me what you want to get to and where you think it's going to go within the next six to 12 months? Where do you see AI going and the power and the capabilities that if this and that can can unlock? Can you talk us through some potential use cases which you guys are working towards? Yeah, some of the things that we're really excited about, I think on, on <clears throat> in one bucket is just this idea of training AI, right? So it's um, when you talk about like large language models, AI, training AI, it's like one of those, you know, kind of this feels off limits. Uh, this isn't something that normal people do or people that aren't engineers do. Uh, but in many ways, it's basically just about giving that AI access to the right pieces of information that can kind of shift how the AI responds, what, what type of response you're going to get to whatever your query is. And so, uh, you know, you can imagine if it has so many different effectively inputs and outputs, you know, ways to read your tweets or to, you know, to post a tweet or to upload a file, uh, to, to Dropbox or somewhere. And so just by kind of plugging in some of those inputs to, you know, our AI, again, kind of powered by open AI, uh, we hope to allow people to very easily kind of train a version of, uh, uh, that language model 
uh, to sound and, and do things in the way that they would want to. Um, so you imagine you can kind of take all the tweets that you've made in the past or all the Facebook posts you've made in the past uh, and kind of shovel that into the AI to help it kind of understand, okay, what does a good tweet in your voice look like or sound like? What are the types of words you use or don't use? Uh, and then that next tweet that it helps you generate uh, ends up being much more personalized and much more like you. Um, so I think that's something, this idea of like training uh, the language model is really interesting. Um, another thing that we have our eye on, you know, they just launched some of the uh, uh, chat GPT plugins. Uh, still, I think very kind of private beta E, but um, there's something really exciting about that, especially as it regards if, and some of the things that if has done well in the past, you know, we have hundreds of connected device services, whether it's your uh, light bulbs or uh, uh, doorbell, your robot vacuums. Um, and so allowing AI uh, to have the access to either kind of actuate those things or take those things uh, kind of into account while it's helping you answer questions. So right now, so many of the, the really exciting things happening with AI um, are kind of involving some of the same, you know, kind of broadly available information that like Google search has access to. Um, but I think, you know, in the near term future, uh, some of the most powerful things that AI can do are going to be much more personalized or tailored to you. Um, so rather than, you know, questions about, you know, who's the best player in baseball or whatever it is, it's much more general. It's more like, you know, what's the best restaurant I should go to, uh, given all these factors where I am now, what's on my calendar, who I'm going with, uh, so on and so forth, what my tastes are. And for AI to be able to effectively answer any of those questions for you, it's got to have access. And really, I think some of this is, it gets into some of the scarier aspects of it. Um, you know, we can talk ad nauseum about the dangers of AI in general, but I think it gets both dangerous and incredibly useful uh, the more it knows about you and the more that it can kind of access uh, in a very controlled way uh, uh, for the services that you're closest to. Um, and so I think well, that's one of the things, you know, if you think about <clears throat> our generalized inputs and outputs, we've even built a lot of products in the past that were really about, um, essentially just turning on and off access. So rather than thinking about IFT as automation, uh, think of IFT as really kind of like access to your other services in a universal way. Um, that product we had called, was called connect. Uh, still very popular. You can find it in a lot of different, especially IoT apps. iRobot app has some really great examples of it. Um, but we think that like with AI, uh, that product is perfectly suited uh, to really kind of jumpstart use cases, whether it's very specific to you as an individual or to some other third-party developer looking to, you know, for instance, we have 25 different connected light bulbs on the platform. If you're trying to build something for someone that involves AI and their lights, you don't want to integrate with 25 different light bulb APIs. Uh, so you want kind of a one-stop way to build those integrations without having to do it as a one-off bespoke integration each time. Um, so really trying to figure out how do we take what we call connect today and what needs to be different about it in the world of AI. Uh, to both give people kind of that confidence to grant that access, but also make that access and managing that access really easy um, and kind of doing it in one place. Um, so that's a little bit further off in a few months, but it's it's something that I think we're really excited about today. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success, you should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in-the-trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs, people just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. 
You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. I've got to ask, like if if you're training the AI to see all the tweets that you've done and then it's automatically tweeting for you as if it was you, so you're basically creating a another version of yourself or like replicating, you know, kind of cloning yourself in terms of the form of a, somebody that's always on Twitter, how will that work? Like in terms of the the trust and the authority of following somebody that's you think is fascinating, like for example, Naval and going like going, Oh, okay. Did he actually write this or was this his, yeah, AI, if this and that, like, how does that work? What is your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's actually one of the things where, you know, I'm a glass half full kind of person. So, uh, uh, I think that's kind of a default mode that also a little bit dangerous. Um, but I view it as we already kind of have this problem in a big way. You know, like I think you go on Twitter today and probably half the tweets you read that are attributed to an individual, especially if that individual is famous, wasn't written by them, right? Like, I don't think, I don't think Joe Biden has the Twitter app, <laughs> you know, but he definitely has a Twitter account. And I think we all kind of know he's not writing those tweets. But my guess is, is that most CEOs that are big on Twitter have someone writing their tweets. So there's already kind of this veil or, you know, uh, confusion that's being added. And I don't necessarily think the answer is to make it more confusing as much as how do we make it something that is more like kind of the essence of who that person already was? Um, I think, again, you know, as it inevitably does get more confusing and you kind of have to have probably a whole new set of, uh, you know, almost kind of like filters to be able to understand, you know, like mental personal filters to be able to understand, is this a real person? Is this generated, um, will probably need to be flags and moderation. I, I like it's, it's really kind of crazy to think about how both screwed up things can get, <laughs> Uh, but I think also uh, how much better they could be. Um, I think from a, a perspective where I think everybody then knows that what they're looking at or what they're reading could potentially be written by someone that isn't human, that isn't necessarily that real person. Uh, I think that will create the opportunity for us to actually solve that problem. So I think what I'm saying is, is that for the last five or six years, we've already lived in that world, right? Like there's already been this uh, kind of fakery where people have ghostwriters or they're, you know, they're basically using their personal brand or their name as a way to get content read or consumed that isn't actually generated by that person. And I think we've all kind of known that, but it's been, you know, we haven't kind of had the, the high alert, uh, or kind of those filters engaged, uh, to allow us to actually make some of those decisions or kind of parse out what's real and what isn't. Um, but like in a world where you could basically generate a full on video of somebody saying anything and have it look exactly like a video of that person saying it in real life themselves, uh, I think it will kind of blow the lid off a lot of that stuff and force us both as an industry. And hopefully there's, there's probably lots of companies, uh, that can be started to solve this problem, uh, to allow people to kind of have a lot more trust in what it is they're reading and not, uh, and at the end of the day, <clears throat> I think it's also about the quality of the content. Do I, if I enjoy reading something or if I'm getting some value from it, whether it's written by a human or a computer, like, does that matter? Um, you know, and I think that's the other kind of thing we'll have to grapple with, uh, is especially when some of this content gets, I mean, I think it already is right. Like, I mean, you can go ask chat GBT today to write something about a topic, especially one you know nothing about, that's going to be way better than anything you could ever write about it. Uh, so we're already there. Um, and the question is, it's like, what's the kind of moral responsibility or ethical responsibility that we all have to make sure people aren't being fooled? Um, and I think, yeah, part of, part of getting to that answer is making sure everybody understands just to what degree the potential is there for them to be full. Uh, so 
so yeah, it's definitely an optimistic view on it. Um, but I think it's kind of a step that has to happen to get to the ultimate solution. Yeah. So one thing that, um, come up when we were just chatting, then I was really thinking about is like, um, so effectively the way things are going with AI, uh, you believe, or your belief is that, uh, it will be easier than ever to start a business because you can tap into a tool like IFT and it can be like your own virtual assistant or another pair of effectively arms and legs that can help you get stuff done, start your business, get it up, do marketing activities, all sorts of things. And so you believe that the barrier to entry to start a business, launch a business, get your first customer will be easier than ever because you have something like IFT, tapping into chat, GPT, et cetera, et cetera. Is that what you're effectively saying? It's definitely one of the things I'm saying. Uh, you know, it's there's no doubt that just like any kind of uh, big tech wave, you know, from the PC to the mobile phone to AI uh, created those opportunities uh, many times in ways that really couldn't have been anticipated or, you know, like you, you almost had to be right ahead of it. Uh, almost, you know, like a surfer, you couldn't anticipate that the next wave was coming in 30 minutes, but you know, in 30 seconds, you probably saw it out there and could start paddling. I think those types of opportunities are going to start to kind of make themselves known just over the next year. And I think those will do what you're saying, which is help people start businesses faster, uh, do things that don't involve, you know, hiring. Imagine not having to hire uh, a marketing team, you know, for an additional two or three years. Uh, because you're able to effectively market across so many different channels in such a personalized way without that marketing team or without, you know, a lot of effort uh, on the, the entrepreneur's part. So that's definitely going to happen. But I think there's also this thing that <clears throat> I think we all are kind of anticipating and it's definitely top of mind with AI is um, I think the types of businesses people will start will also be radically different. Um, uh, and I think that's one of the things that I honestly, I don't even know if I have a good answer or a good example of what that will look like. Um, but you know, uh, you know, three or four years ago, you could probably start a, a business to help entrepreneurs solve that marketing problem. And now if that marketing problem is about to be solved with AI, that business probably isn't going to be as viable as it was. And I think there's going to be a lot of examples like that, but you also again, kind of have to assume that no matter what that technical revolution was, like as big as the initial, you know, PC or as big as the internet was, and as disruptive as that was, as many different types of jobs went away or evolved in a really dramatic way, um, I think that same thing will happen with AI. But it, it may be bigger, it may be very different, um, but that doesn't mean there isn't always ways to create more value or always ways to find new opportunities to build radically different types of businesses than would have been possible before. Um, and I think, you know, like that conversation is just starting. There's a lot of, you know, <clears throat> shoot when, you know, my, uh, my partner is a, is a marketer, uh, and turned her, her on to chat GPT. And like in the first couple of days, she was just like, oh my goodness, I have to start looking for another job. But then day four or five, she was like using it every day to do her job better. Right. So I think, if we can get over that kind of initial fear and actually start to approach it in like an optimistic way or a positive way, we're no doubt going to find so many more benefits, I think, than negatives or problems. Um, not to say that those problems won't exist. Yeah. So um, this is a great conversation, Lyndon, because it's very topical. Um, I'm curious just around one last thing and uh, we have to work towards wrapping up soon, but uh Curious around, all right, you're in 2023 now, you are an engineer or somebody with an idea and you want to start an online business and you want to tap into the potential of AI. Is it easy to build these, you know, micro SaaS apps that would be like a chat GPT plugin? Because I believe the chat, the, the chat GPT chat gpt plugin stuff that'll be the new app store no doubt about it like that's a multi-billion dollar industry which like spun up overnight um so 
Yeah, what advice would you give to uh, a potential aspiring founders uh, that want to tap into AI that are look trying to look a couple of years ahead and try and think about what are the problems that people need solved in a couple of years to kind of ride this wave because it, it's not going anywhere. I'd encourage folks to, you know, whether they've kind of uh, evolved with or, you know, been working in technology for the last 10 years or whether they're just starting um, to kind of become a student of kind of what's happened, especially with platforms, right? Like if you kind of start the the platform clock ticking at around Windows, you know, the, 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 the platform to end all platforms still, uh, and you go through like the app store and kind of, you know, what I call the golden age of APIs and how APIs have been treated over the years and try to understand how the people that own those platforms have also evolved, right? Like I think um, when you look at what OpenAI is doing with their platform and how they're approaching it, you can see that they're, they've learned a lot from what people have done wrong or gotten wrong in the past. Um, and, you know, even, even with how AI, uh, open AI is kind of approaching who it's for, you know, like, uh, chat GPT, I, I believe is like the fastest growing consumer internet application of all time, but I don't think anything they're doing is actually aimed at consumers just because a lot of the same people are signing up to jet GPT that also signed up to Instagram in the first year. I think they could actually care less. What they actually care about are folks that are trying to either build a business or work in technology or, or work in any industry. They're really aimed at building open AI uh, as something that businesses can use. And so because of that focus, they're definitely thinking about, okay, what are all the things that are going to sit on top of open AI? How are those going to be monetized? What are the strategic things, right? Like I think, um, you know, even around the, the, the kind of learning models, right? That's obviously kind of core to what open AI is and how it works. Uh, and so even though I, I talked about what IFT is doing now in terms of helping people kind of personalize uh, that language model and give it access to information that makes the answers that AI generates for them more personal or more personalized. Um, and I think that's something that we have really no expectation of being able to own, uh, even though maybe short term, there is some value in that. And there's, you know, some defensibility in that, uh, it's going to be something that whether it's open AI or one of the other tech companies is going to do really, really well in a way that allows people to build things on top of it. So I think you have to look at, you know, as easy as it is to kind of like add AI to something you're doing or build something on top, uh, you really need to be thinking about, you know, the kind of, you know, age old, you know, like where are the moats here? How do I make this defensible in a way that either the platform provider, open AI or whoever it is, or some other much more kind of well-resourced entity can come in and just blow it out of the water or copy it. Um, and I think some of those things are going to be in, uh, like approachability. How do you make it either really safe, whether it's for a business or for, uh, an individual consumer? Um, I think, uh, some other opportunities are going to be around, uh, effectively, how do you take AI and make it something that isn't even mentioned in what you're doing, right? Like problems that people need to solve, uh, frankly, don't change very often, <laughs> You know, we still, have, we still have to eat, sleep, you know, get dressed in the morning. Uh, you know, we have to, you know, the, the basic types of problems that businesses have solved for hundreds of years are going to be the problems that businesses are going to solve in the future. And so I think you have to figure out, like, how does AI solve those problems, not just a little bit better, but 10x better and do it in a way that's also defensible, where it's not just you know, the magic of the open API, open AI APIs with a little bit of, you know, kind of branding on top of it, but where you're actually adding enough value, uh, that you can kind of sustain that as you actually start to become successful. Uh, you're not all of a sudden in a pack of hundreds of other competitors that the, the customer can't kind of differentiate from. Um, so yeah, creating value and doing that in a defensible way. Uh, I don't think those things are going to change. Like those could have been answers to building building a new business fifty years ago, um, and I think those are probably still going to be answers. This is a very this is a very Jeff Bezos answer of me, I think. But it's yeah, like the the, the actual problems themselves, they really don't change. 
Uh, it's really like how you solve those problems that seems to be changing faster and faster every day. We talk about every day, like right now, um, you know, the economic climate is tough, probably going to get tougher. Um, what do you think founders should be doing, especially tech founders, uh, to lead their businesses during a, a climate like now? Well, if you already have a business, um, I mean, getting to break even, controlling your own destiny. I think, you know, this, this is also like a very VC answer. Um, but, you know, I think it's also the truth, right? Like we, um, we were, I think, both lucky enough and perhaps cursed to be able to raise money fairly easily. And, you know, I think we raised our first round in 2011 or 12, raised a big round in 2014 around IoT. Um, and if I could go back in time, not that, you know, like all of our investors and board members have actually been fantastic. Uh, and I'm not just, you know, kissing ass here. Like they've been so patient, uh, and so supportive. Um, but I think we would have probably been better off had we raised less capital and been forced to actually figure out how do we get to break even faster? Um, and I think that's actually easier, you know, done these days than it was five, six years ago. Uh, not just because the price of starting your business has, you know, continues to come down for all the reasons I'm sure, you know, everybody's talked about ad nauseum, um, but also because the expectations from your customers are very different, right? Like we, you know, eight years into building our business, we took this like hard pivot into saying that our customer, you know, isn't actually the brands themselves. You know, that's where we built our initial business, grew that to about 5 million ARR, but they're actually the individual users. So the people that, you know, everybody at the company is actually thinking about all day, every day in terms of how to build the best possible experience, you know? So we kind of even went against some of the, I think things that I would say are almost like fundamental to the types of things that I, I love or, or want to build, uh, by making someone other than the user, our customer. And we're making up for that time. You know, I think now it feels so much cleaner to be building a business, uh, where, all of our energy is oriented around building something for the people that actually use the product uh, and getting them to use it enough or value it enough to want to pay for it. And I think that that probably wouldn't have been possible eight years ago. Um, you know, I just don't think consumers were ready to pay for almost anything on the internet, you know, Netflix, maybe. But nowadays, I think it's very different. I think there's an expectation, um, you know, that, you know, consumers are willing to pay for stuff not just content. And so I think being able to like tap into that and think about like, who do you want your customer to be? What's changed over the last two or three years in terms of their willingness to pay, uh, I think allows you to probably take some risk earlier on that may have been, you know, much more risky or even frowned upon in the early days in terms of building something right out of the gate where you've aligned the customer and the user and the product in a row. You know, you're not trying to do something fancy where you're bringing in, you know, affiliated marketers or getting, you know, some brands to, to essentially prop something up. Um, you know, it's kind of back, you know, back to selling coffee. The people that drink the coffee are the people that are buying the coffee. Um, and I think if you have a company today and there's some misalignment in that model where the user and the customer aren't the exact same person. And, you know, actually this is true for almost anybody building uh, 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 software aimed at an enterprise, right? Often the customer or the buyer is pretty radically different than the person that's actually, you know, clicking the buttons or, or loading the, the loading the apps. Uh, and I think that's due for a lot of change as well. Um, so getting a lot closer to those customers, um, and using that, uh, to find ways to get to break even so that you can build a business that doesn't necessarily need a lot of capital, uh, to be successful. Also goes back to filling that gap between Facebook and the coffee shop. There's so much opportunity and, you know, not just to build successful businesses, but to build businesses that, you know, make the founder incredibly wealthy. If that's your goal, you don't have to, to be Mark Zuckerberg, uh, to feel like you've built something that's been totally worth it. Um, uh, it's a lot harder to do with a coffee shop, but still possible. Uh, but I think it's going to be a lot easier to do with those businesses that kind of exists in that, you know, right now, uh, like, uh, you know, it's like a, it's like a ghost town 
there aren't a lot of businesses that you know, you probably know about uh, that have 10, 10 million in revenue and say like that's amazing. <laughs> if we could get to twelve million, that that would be perfect. You know, you, you know a lot about businesses that went from ten million to a hundred million, um, but there's not a lot kind of in that, that middle world. So, um, yeah, there's just so much potential there. Lyndon, I could talk to you all day about this kind of stuff, man. Um, we have to work towards wrapping up. Uh, we're going to move to the hot seat round. So rapid fire questions and answers, and then we'll wrap up. What's your favorite part of the work day? Well, maybe work week. Uh, we have a weekly all hands meeting called WTF used to stand for, aside from what WTF used to stand for, uh, Wednesday team forum. We evolved that to be weekly team forum because <laughs> it now happens on a Friday. Uh, but just seeing the people we work with, you know, we were one of the folks that uh, made the transition from having like this amazing office space in downtown San Francisco to being fully remote. Um, and just being reminded that there's people that work on if that are like just as passionate about if as I am, which is like crazy to think about, like, cause I'm pretty passionate about it, <laughs> but, um, shoot, we had, uh, we, we had a board meeting two weeks ago and I think three out of the six folks on our leadership team that attended the board meeting were wearing like some kind of like if swag. And it was almost like I sent a memo to everybody like, Hey, wear your if swag. I wasn't one of those three. Um, but just like being reminded that you work with people that care about what they're working on. And if you work in a place where those people are few and far between, get the hell out of there. You know, like you've got to work with folks that care about what they're doing and not just because they care about their personal craft, but you know, they believe or find something to believe in relative to what they're actually working on. Um, and so I think, yeah, that, that Wednesday or, or weekly team forum is kind of the place where I'm just like constantly reminded of that. Um, because it's not just me talking to everybody for 30 minutes. It's everybody else kind of sharing what they're working on and kind of talking about what has happened that week that gets them excited. And it's just so energizing. So it's awesome. And that's an all, right, all hands answer. That's a company all hands. Yes. Yeah. It's all, all, all hands video call. I love it. And how many people on it? Uh, well, we, we have folks all around the world now. So we usually get about 34, 35 folks. We have about 46 people total at the company. What's the best advice you've received early in your career? I think early on, and this is maybe even a little counter to what I just said, but um, uh, I, one of uh, my advisors and friend was a fellow named Gentry Underwood. And um, he worked at, you know, he started a company called uh, Inbox. They sold the Dropbox. Uh, just incredibly sharp, sharp fellow. But we were talking a little bit about... Um, we had some other designers on the team and, you know, kind of product folks and engineers. We're kind of talking about giving them autonomy and space and, you know, like, uh, you know, things I maybe disagreed on. Uh, and I can't, you know, kind of phrase it, the advice uh, exactly right. But he basically said, you know, you're the, the you're the designer, you know, like, you, you know, like you, you shouldn't, especially in the early days, be constantly concerned with trying to build an organization you know in the early days like if you have a gut feel for what it should be you've you almost always got to go with that gut feel you know that doesn't mean you should be a, a tyrant or you know, I, I try to think about like the the personalities that probably exist in like the fashion world you know where they march around and tell everybody they suck all day definitely not that um but don't be afraid in the very early days to have a strong opinion about everything. Because if you're starting a business, you probably do have a strong opinion about everything. Um, you know, but find ways to effectively communicate that, communicate the why behind it, or find ways, you know, to kind of compromise or, you know, if you have to try a couple different things. Um, but you know, don't shy away from essentially executing on the thing you think is right just because some of the other earlier people involved think differently. So again, you know, a little bit counterintuitive because over time that shifts a little bit, right? Like you've got to give people a lot more room uh, to kind of succeed and fail on their own devices because you can't be everywhere at once. Um, you can still have a really strong opinion. You can find ways to kind of like institutionalize that opinion. And I think that's another thing that you know, I don't have a, a good piece of advice there. Um, but it's, it's really kind of understanding the different stages 
And in the first two or three years, there's no one in the world that's going to care more about what you're building than you. Um, and I think if you're doing it right over time, you'll be able to attract some of those other people. And, and again, you'll be able to kind of like institutionalize some of that culture or some of that opinion uh, that you had in the very early days. Um, but there's a reason you started the business, even you know, despite all the horror stories and how hard everybody says it is. Um, and you're just never going to be happy unless you're kind of pursuing those things that you feel strongly about, even if, even if you've had no experience doing it, um, you know, you've got to kind of try those things. Otherwise you've basically started a business and, you know, almost given it to other folks that don't have that same passion yet because you haven't institutionalized it. What's your greatest motivator? Honestly, it's, uh, again, and I trying to find ways to explain this that doesn't seem canned or <laughs> too, uh, kind of, uh, PR speak. Um, it's the people that use the product, right? Like anytime people share a story, um, whether from a customer or their own personal use, uh, and thinking about how that actually helps them, I get so motivated. Like even when we were talking about, uh, helping people start new types of digital businesses, it's a relatively kind of new focus for us. Just within the last year, have we kind of narrowed our focus to think about, uh, you know, you said it like the creator economy. Um, I think it's finding ways to kind of associate what it is you're doing with the people that use it and then finding ways to get in front of that feedback loop, right? Like there's, uh, as kind of a designer engineer, um, I, I'm obsessed with in the very early stages of building something being able to get a full feedback loop from the user experience to like each line of code. So you imagine if it's like a website, refreshing the website, changing something, refreshing the website. So you're trying to kind of get this feedback loop going where every little change results in something that you can experience as the end user. And so as you get beyond that, actually actually have people using it. Um, I think it's very easy sometimes to almost become detached. You know, you, uh, you started talking about coffee shops a lot. You know, if you start a coffee shop, my guess is after the first year, you probably don't go through like the customer journey, right? Like you probably don't stand in line and wait for coffee. You might drink your own coffee, um, but you don't think a lot about, okay, what's the experience of someone from the outside in? And so, you know, finding ways to like constantly put yourself in that position of the people you're actually building the product for and, you know, temporarily forget all the things, you know, all the ins and outs, all, you know, all the duct tape, you know, under the surface, um, and try to experience it as someone that doesn't know any better or only has 20 seconds of their time to dedicate to thinking about the thing that you spent 20 years on. Um, and that just gets harder and harder, you know, every year you spend on it. Um, it's harder and harder to kind of detach from this understanding that you have from behind the curtain. A couple more questions and we have to wrap cause we're over time. Sorry. Um, First one is, uh, what's your favorite, uh, if this and that? My personal favorite, I think I, I always kind of go to it, but it is, um, I've been using Ift first with Google Reader and now with Feedly. I'm surprisingly still a, an old school RSS person um, to basically save all the things, whether it's videos or pictures, uh, and put them on my own like personal Tumblr blog. I don't try to get anybody to go to it. I think, I think the URL is like Lyndon Tibbetts was here.com or something like that. You know, so it's like, I don't think I've even looked at it from an outsider's perspective as much as I look at that feed as really kind of like design inspiration. It's like my, my ongoing, you know, decades long mood board. Uh, and that, uh, is powered with an applet. You know, if I like something in Feedly post that to my Tumblr blog, and then I have another applet, uh, that then takes all those posts, specifically the ones that are you know, media of some sort of video or, uh, uh, image, and then saves those to a specific Dropbox folder that's on my, uh, on my laptop. And then that's the folder I use to power the screensaver. So I kind of constantly have this, basically it's like my blog powers my screensaver, uh, and all the things I like in my feed reader power my blog. Love it. And then last question, if you could have dinner with any entrepreneur dead or alive, who would it be and why? Tesla would be one of them, uh, largely just because they feel like he's still so misunderstood. I don't think anybody really understood what Tesla was either working on or trying to say or understood that other people didn't. 
Um, and yeah, it's like, seems like almost the most, most likely to have been from another planet kind of, kind of people. Um, or I'd have to go way back in time to like Plato or Archimedes or something, you know, somebody that had a sense of the world in a way that just feels so foreign, uh, to, to who we are today, right? Like, I think we're getting to the point where if you think about some of the folks that like, you know, in those ancient times, you know, Roman or Greek times, only a very small percentage of people in those times could have even possibly been Plato, right? Like the access you needed to have and the support you needed from a community to dedicate all your time to thinking or to you know, traveling to Egypt to learn something uh, from a totally different civilization was you know, probably ridiculously expensive. It's probably akin to like affording a trip to the the moon or something or to outer space today. Um, I think, you know, now we just have so much more access, but it would be very cool to understand what some of those like super ancient inventors like understood about, you know, where they thought things were going or how they, you know, kind of coalesced uh, from a disparate set of things into some new idea. Um, I just think there would be so much to learn from that just because their context was so radically different than ours today, right? Like it'd be cool to have, you know, dinner with Bill Gates or Elon Musk, but in some way there's probably always some sense of either competing or inferiority, right? Like we, like they did things that I'm trying to do, obviously want to learn from them because they've, they've been so radically more successful, but do they really see the world in such a different way than I do today? I, I don't know. Um, you know, like, I think in some ways it would be less learning and more, you know, either coming away with some kind of inferiority complex or trying to compete on, you know, whatever it is that entrepreneurs today want to compete on. So yeah, I'd, I'd have to go way back in time, uh, to justify that dinner. Love it. Well, Lyndon, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and, uh, being so open, honest, sharing so much wisdom and experience on uh, building IFT. And uh, congratulations on all your success thus far. I'm uh, looking forward to watching the journey on how you continue to develop this product. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you again for your time. Of course. Thank you, Nathan. My pleasure. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.